text of emphasis this afternoon is found in the book of Exodus, uh, chapter 20, and starting with verse uh, 4. It says there this, You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in the heaven above or the earth beneath or in the waters below. Shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Let's pray one more time. Oh God, as we consider these words, your words, we pray for insight and understanding on who you are and on who we are. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week we started, as Derek mentioned, our summer sermon series or teaching series on the Ten Commandments, uh, Ten to Life. Uh, the, sermon, the Ten Commandments has been a common theme for uh, sermons throughout the ages. I'm sure if you've been around church circles, you've heard them uh, before. And so in light of this familiarity, we are taking a look not to just discern what the commandments teaches about what we should do and what we shouldn't do, but about what the commandments teach us about who God is, who God is. So while the Bible is uh, full of, of things from God, the Ten Commandments are unique in that these are the direct words of God, transcribed by his own hand. And so while most of the Bible is, uh, is written by humans who are taking their experience and putting it on, on paper, we have here a kind of a very direct uh, symbol of God's uh, character in that uh, he wrote it with his own hand. And so what, is, what do the Ten Commandments teach us about who God is. As we're journeying through this, we want to keep in mind Jesus' words in Matthew 22 and Mark 12 when he was asked about the commandments, asked which are the greatest, and he summarized them by saying that uh, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind is the first and greatest commandment, and that the second commandment is just like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. These are the words of Jesus. So as we continue through this teaching time thinking about the commandments, we recognize that in Jesus' mind, the commandments are rooted in relationship. They're rooted in relationship. So again, we want to know what kind of God is this who's calling us into relationship with him, and we can get some insights by looking at what these commandments have to say about who God is. So last week we started looking at the first commandment. You can go back on adventhope.org and catch up on that. It was the longest sermon in the history of Church of the Advent Hope, 52 minutes. So I'm going to make up for that today by being shorter with you today. Um, and so we're looking at the second uh, commandment today, and we see it explicitly articulated in verse 4. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or the earth beneath or the waters below, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. Now, I would suggest to you that there are at least three distinct things that we can learn about God 
from this the second commandment. Three things we can learn about God from this second commandment. Um, the first thing is pretty overt, and that is that uh, it's pretty clear that God wants us as human beings to, to know and to recognize who he is and, and what he has done. Now, this can be a little disconcerting, and of course this is not the only place in which God is coming on strong about his identity and who he is, and it could lead uh, us to think, you know, is God an egomaniac? Why is he so obsessed with, you know, our, our worship of him and recognizing who he is and what he has done? And maybe as we think about that, is God an egomaniac, uh, we can uh, process a little bit what the idea of worship really is. So, uh, obviously, worship is, is translated from an old Hebrew word, but the old English word, the first English translation is maybe most helpful for us. So the word worship comes from two words, worth and ship, worth and ship. And so uh, worship is rooted in worthiness and worthiness. God is worthy of being acknowledged for who he is and for what he's done. This is what uh, God is getting at when he calls humanity to worship him, to, in essence, recognize and acknowledge who he is. Now, at some level, this makes uh, complete sense. If he is indeed the uh, creator, recognizing and acknowledging his identity as creator is essentially important, not just because he has a giant ego, but because unless we recognize who he is, we're going to be all mixed up about who we are. And so God's desire for us to know who he is and to know what he's done, and, and he keeps pushing back to this concept of him as creator, that he has created the world. And he's not just doing this because he has a big ego, but because he wants us to recognize who we are, that we come from a creator, that someone is responsible for us as a, as a, as a race, as a, as a race of humans, that we are rooted in him. And so his worthiness is that from him is where we come. And so we uh, keep this in mind as we continue this, uh, this journey. God is not uh, an egomaniac. He wants us to recognize that we come from someone who cares, and we have worth because he is worthy. Now, secondly, uh, as we wrestle what this commandment says about who God is, we recognize that God is pretty explicit here, that he has designed his creations, us, to be creative. I know many of you. Each of you have particular sets of skills toward uh, creativity. Some of you are uh, writers, some of you are artists, some of you are uh, doctors and, and, and nurses, and in each of your experiences, you are able to express creativity in some way. And so God acknowledges this, that, that he has designed us to be a creative, but he also acknowledges that there is a danger innate in that creativity, and that is that uh, we will overemphasize our own creations, the worthiness, the worthness of our own Creation. So he designed us to be creative, but then there's the danger that we will overvalue our own 
uh, creations. And so we see this in this, this command, not to make for yourself an image in the form of anything in the heaven above or the earth beneath or in the waters below. And for heaven's sake, don't bow down to worship them. You're creative, but be careful that you don't overvalue your creations. Now, in ancient times, this had a very uh, practical application and implication. In ancient times, not just in ancient times, in cultures uh, in, in the world today, um, people would or, or do take God's creation, whether it be a tree or a, a rock, and uh, form it into an image, often the image of what someone thinks God might look like or the image of something that is interpreted as being related to God. So if you, you know, have been convinced that the sun itself is, is God or a God, so you might either worship that, that sun, that created thing, or you might create a representation of that that works for you, so you make it, the, the, the sun God into a, into a, a figure and then you worship it. And so this was particularly prominent in, in ancient times. So this had a real meaning when God is giving this commandment to these Israelites who are coming out of a polytheistic uh, culture where the idea of idols, of actual things, rocks, stones, trees, had been made into things that, that were worshipped as God. So in one sense, it had a very real and practical application for the people of the day. But we have to look at ourselves today, and the reality is most of us, most of us don't have little figurines. Some of you may. Um, I mean, it does, it does happen in the sort of figurines that, uh, uh, that you worship in your, in your house. And so with that reality, what are the implications for us today in 21st century New York of this command to not make images? And uh, so... Bible students, contemporary Bible students have thought about this and say, you know, what do we make idols out of today? And as, as one would evaluate that, we might think, um, you know, I've heard it said, well, the things that we spend the most time doing are our idols, or the most energy on are our idols. Um, but I think that that's that's a little bit challenging because, look, there, in this world, especially in New York, we spend a lot of time doing a lot of things, right? And uh, it doesn't mean necessarily that you are worshiping things. I mean, you go to work, you have a job, uh, you have families, you have uh, uh, your career. You spend a lot of time in that, and that doesn't necessarily mean that you are worshiping those things. I know some people who spend a lot of time in their job, and the last thing they do is worshiping their, their job. Uh, who don't actually enjoy it that, that, that much. So it's not on, in danger of becoming an idol to them. So, so what are these images that we create from our own hands that in danger or, 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 or are in danger of becoming excessive, having excessive worth to us? Um, uh, the reality is, while work in and of itself, uh, for many of us, isn't an idol, the idea of a career could be something in which we put an excessive amount of worth in. Again, if we're saying that worth is the issue, worth is the issue, something that we have value in. When we talk about worship, we're talking about acknowledging God for who he is and recognizing that we put our trust in him and are capable of doing that. So what other things do we put our trust in? What, do, what other things that we make from our own hands do we put our faith 
in. And certainly, you could say a career would be one of those things. The idea that you know, you're building this thing, and you've spent um, many years of your life getting to where you are, and so, and, and you build this career, and that can, can become excessively important, and we may put an excessive amount of trust in that, that if, if I just have a better career, if I keep working harder, that I'm going to be the person I want to be, and it's going to solve all my problems and answer all the questions that I have in life. Uh, another another uh, element, another potential image that we create on our own is you know, our education. If we build our education portfolio, if we keep educating ourselves, that that's going to get us out of whatever circumstances that we're we're in and it's going to lead maybe to a career or it's certainly at least going to lead to us uh, to having more knowledge and uh, so an education can be something that we have excessive uh, trust in. Our financial resources, the classic one, you know if, if, you're, if your uh, bank account is in the right place then it's very easy to put excessive uh, trust in that, that as long as that has a certain number in there everything is going to be Okay, and so humans, we have the tendency to put a trust and faith in our financial resources. And then relationships, um, sometimes we can put excessive trust in our interpersonal relationships. And so I'm sure that there are others, but these may be just a few examples of things in which we create with our own hands, our career, our education portfolio, our our financial resources, our financial portfolio, and our relationships with each other. We create them, but then the tendency is that we take that, that creation becomes excessively uh, trustworthy for us. And so, again, apparently God is concerned about this in the second command, commandment. Don't make uh, images that you are going to bow down and worship, that you're going to put your trust in, because ultimately they're, they're not worthy. They're not worthy of being uh, trusted. Your, your education can uh, become obsolete as new advances are made and you're not keeping up with things. Your, your, your bank account can get empty very quickly. Your career, you can lose your job. Um, even relationships, even the best of relationships are tenuous because people, um, in the worst case scenario, people die. And so if your hope and you put excessive trust in any of these things, ultimately, uh, there could be trouble. And so God is like, don't do this. Listen, don't, don't, don't overvalue things, the, the creations of your own hand. So we see that God wants us to recognize uh, who he is because his worth gives us worth. And God has designed us to be creative, but he is clearly concerned that as we overvalue our own creative ability and our own creations, we will lose touch with reality. Finally, and maybe most disturbingly in this, in this passage, and when I read the Ten Commandments, I love to skip over this part, if not, if not actually mentally. I like to turn off this part because it is a little bit uncomfortable, but we read in uh, verse 5 these words, you shall not bow down to these worship these things of your own hand, these creations of your own hand, and, and you should not worship them. Don't put, uh, don't overvalue them. Don't put too much trust in them. For I, 
the Lord your God am a jealous God. We talked about God being jealous last week, a great relational concept, jealousy. I am a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, again, I like to read the Ten Commandments and skip over that part about God punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and the fourth generation because that is disturbing. Are you disturbed by that? I'm a little bit disturbed by that, okay? Um, God punishes because of sin. This is the thing we learn about God from the second commandment. God punishes because of sin, but ultimately, ultimately wants everyone to live in loving, worshipful relationship with him. Um, so one of the most disturbing things about reading the Ten Commandments is uh, recognizing that uh, not only does God punish, which he's pretty overt about, but he apparently does so generationally. Punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. Now, as I thought about that, and I thought about my own kids, I recognized that in reality, this is not all that surprising. Uh, we know, we know that as parents uh, and as children, there are tendencies, there are things that you might qualify as, 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 as sin, the result of sin, that are passed down from generation to generation. I mean, um, I look at my kids and, you know, I like to see all the good things in them, but I also recognize that there are some habits, there are tendencies, there are just things that, you, did they learn this, where did this come from, that may be not so great uh, for them. It's just the reality. So some really good things that I'm really excited about for their future, but there are also some things that I recognize are going to be challenges for them. And then I think about myself, and I recognize looking back in my own family, like there are some elements that, that each of us struggle with that didn't start with us, that started with our families. And so maybe God is indicating this reality that we at some level have these uh, generational strengths and generational uh, weaknesses. And so this idea of, of punishing, and maybe that's the most disturbing, the idea that God uh, punishes because of this, and he punishes these, these generational situations, that, again, makes me a little uncomfortable. But then as I was thinking about that, I thought about Hebrews chapter uh, 12 and the relationship between punishment and discipline, between punishment and discipline. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 4, the, the apostle Paul, the great apostle Paul, is writing his letter to the, the Hebrew church, these words. He says this, in your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Paul always likes to really push it a little bit. You haven't resisted yet to, to shedding blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, and now he's quoting another passage in the Bible, my son, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. Don't make light of the Lord's punishment, if you will. And don't lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as son, sons. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not a legitimate then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. 
how much more should we submit to the Father who is alive? Our fathers, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. Might Hebrews chapter 12 help us to understand what's going on in Exodus chapter 20, that God is like, hey, look, there are generational challenges that are passed down from generation to generation, and that involves some, some punishment, but the idea behind punishment is that we learn uh, that God disciplines, and the idea of discipline is that God is drawing us into relationship with him. And again, as I think about my own uh, children there, and I think about, again, my own experience, there are times when I've had to uh, discipline my uh, children, not because I'm capricious or not because I just am angry one day. If you're disciplining because you're angry, you got a, you got a problem. you gotta, you got you to gotta hold back on that. But there are times that if you don't discipline, something, a habit, a tendency, an attitude is going to continue that's going to end up harming your child. And so you have to interject, and that sometimes involves uh, punishment. And you have to have wisdom regarding what that punishment is and, and how strong or weak that punishment is going to be. But it's all designed to bring the child into a relationship, not just with yourself, but with all of those around us. So in Exodus chapter 20, again, we have this picture of God who punishes with the heart of bringing people in right relationship with God. And so you have this contrast. Hey, I punish, but I only do that as, as long as necessary. But my love endures forever, from generation to generation, for a thousand generations. And so this contrast of only punishing for as long as, as necessary, only disciplining for as long as necessary, so that you can live eternally. In right relationship, and again, this is if you you know if you're always punishing your your children, again something is wrong. The goal of 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 discipline is so that you can live in right relationship with each other. And so, Hebrews twelve gives some insight as to what's going on in Exodus chapter twenty. And so we see these three insights about who God is from this second commandment. And, and what God is about. God wants us to recognize us for who he is and, and acknowledge his worth and what he's done on our behalf and recognize that we can trust in him. God recognizes that we are creative beings, but he's also concerned and acknowledges his concern that we are in danger when we overvalue our own creations. And then God indeed punishes sin. He disciplines sin, but ultimately wants everyone to live in loving relationship with him. And so as we uh, think about what we learn about God from the commandments, the natural response is to then do what we do when we read the commandments. Think, okay, all right, I can be on board with this. How am I going to keep this commandment? How am I going to keep this commandment? How God has given instruction. I understand a little bit now why he's doing it. It's not because he's an egomaniac. It's not because he loves punishing. He's got a purpose. He knows what he's doing. How do I keep this commandment? And so our common strategy is to think about those things that potentially are images that we've made for ourselves that we're putting too much trust in. And so we, uh, we go home at night and we toss and turn in bed and we think, you know, what, what is it that I'm putting too much 
trust in and we start evaluating, evaluating our life and we may start praying and we might recognize that, oh, you know, I've put so much time and effort, but not just time and effort, I've put so much trust and hope in my career that that, that has become uh, burdensome. And so I'm, 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 my, my, my worth is related to my career and that's not healthy. Or we might say, uh, you know, my worth is, is, is rooted in this relationship that I've been trying to create and foster with another person, but, but uh, that's, that's become excessive. And so we, we think about these things. We think about the things that are be, have become idols for our experience. And so then we make decisions uh, to change how we are going to think about things. But the reality is that this is very, very difficult. Changing what you trust in is incredibly uh, difficult, especially if the thing hasn't yet let you down. If the thing hasn't let you down, if your career hasn't yet let you down, if you're thriving, it's very difficult to, to say to yourself, all right, I'm not going to put trust in my a career. Or if a relationship hasn't let you down, then it's very difficult to say, oh, that's an idol for me. I'm going to adjust my thinking on this. And so we have a difficult time actually uh, keeping this commandment and, quite frankly, any of the commandments in their, in their core. And so what hope do we have? Well, this is where the story of Jesus enters the, the picture. Uh, God uh, sends his son into the world. We read in Philippians chapter 2 these words, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by, became, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The story of the Bible is that God is the creator of the world, that there is, there, he, is, he is worthy of worship, that we can trust in him because he made all things, but he didn't stop there. Once the world became a broken place and once human relationships became a broken, he didn't give up. He didn't say, well, I created things and you messed it up and so I'm out of here. The story continues that he sent his son who being in very nature God, didn't consider uh, being called God something he needed to hold on to, but was willing to give that up for us. In Jesus, God proves that he's not only worthy of our trust and our hope because of what he's done in creation, but he's also worthy because he hasn't left us on our own now, that he didn't leave the world a mess, that he came to, to rescue us. And so he's both the creator and the rescuer, the God who creates and the God who restores. You can lose your career. Some of you have fantastic careers, I know. I've visited many of you in your workplace or near your workplace, and things are going splendidly. But that can be gone, some others know this, can, that can be gone in a second. You can lose your career. Your education be, can become invalidated because new advancements come on and you haven't uh, kept up. Your financial resources can go bye-bye very quickly, especially in New York. Stop working for three months in New York, 
and keep paying rent. Some of you have had to do that for longer than three months. Bye-bye, financial resources. Even relationships, even human relations, even the best of relationships, there's no guarantee because of the, the simple problem of death. Even the best of relationships are always in danger, unfortunately, of death. So when we put excessive trust in career or finances or relationships, we're always in danger of having our hopes crushed. But the Bible tells us that we have a God who is worthy of trust, who created all things in the beginning. And, and make no mistake, Genesis and Exodus and the Ten Commandments are explicit about God's ability to create and that he is the origin of all things. God is the creator, but he didn't just stop there. It's not just something that has happened in the past. That God sent Jesus, and Jesus came and lived and died, and so God is not just the creator off in the distant past, but God is the rescuer here and now today because of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. We have hope for the future, and he is worthy so that we can put our trust in him. In Jesus, God has proven his capacity to be there for us forever. And so today, as we continue to uh, contemplate these uh, commandments and as we recognize that they teach us important things not just about what we're supposed to do but about who God is and who we are we can take ho hope that that the message of God as creator and the message of God as rescuer identifies something important in our own reality that we are also worthy that God cares about us, that God cares about you as an individual, that you have, that you have uh, meaning to God, that you are worth something. You know, again, in the world in which we exist, our own worth seems very limited at times, especially when we're, 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 we're told that we're just specks of dust in the, in the universe, and we live a very short time, and then we're gone. I mean, that's all well and good, but what a depressing way to live. You're here for 50, 60, 70 years if you're lucky. We think of uh, you know, Pastor Tony, who we're going to celebrate his life next Friday. I hope you're going to be there, by the way. Next Friday down at our sister church, 11th Street. What a, what a, what a great testimony uh, his life is. But to think that you know, he lived 70 years, and that's it, and he's done, and he's dust in the wind. It's a depressing way to live, but the second commandment tells us that, that God is worthy of our worship, but because he's worthy, because he created us, we are also worthy. That there is worth in us, that we have value as human beings, that every single one of us is, is, is of value and worth. You may have been fired from your job this week. You may have broken up uh, with a significant other this week. You may have lost all the money in your bank account this week. I don't know what you're going through. I know some of you are going through some pretty terrible things, but there's good news in the second commandment, and that is you are worthy and worth something to the God, the creator of the universe, who didn't just create at some far distant point in the past, but has worked through Jesus now to give us hope for a new future. You are worth something. Let's pray.
God, we take heart in the news that we are your handiwork, created in Christ Jesus. So I thank you for the words of the second uh, commandment, and I thank you for a, a better understanding of who you are. And I pray that you'll continue to reveal to us uh, who we are. Thank you for feeling that we're worth something to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.